In this segment, I'm going to have a conversation with John Wary, Dr. John Wary, who is the director of the Institute for Immunology at the University of Pennsylvania, among other great titles. And what we're doing is unpacking the last six months of information about the COVID pandemic and treatments and scientific studies that have come to light um, somewhat recently that we haven't had a chance to talk about on our radio show. I think you'll find the conversation incredibly interesting and stimulating. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. For this segment, it is my pleasure to uh, introduce to you uh, Dr. John Wary, um, who's actually been on our show before. He is still the director of the Institute for Immunology at our very own University of Pennsylvania. He's also the co-director of the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy and the chair of the Department of Systems Pharmacology and Translational Therapeutics. And among, I think, quite a bunch of other prestigious titles. Um, anyway, John, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. It's great to have you uh, to talk um, medicine once again. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so um, one of the motivations for having you here is you, you, were, you were on in the past because for when COVID unfurled itself, on the world. Um, our sports analytics show had to curtail. There was no sports. So we devoted ourselves for at least six months um, when there was no sports to talking exclusively about COVID data. So that was our angle. We would be statisticians talking about COVID data. Um, then when sports um, reemerged, we devoted about a half an hour of our show for about nearly two, two and a half years to COVID. And we haven't visited it at all in the last six months. And what I thought it would be great to do today is to um, visit some of the questions that have been bubbling up over the last six months um, that people have been talking about and that are some of them have been in the news. Some of the more political ones, while that might be interesting, I'm probably not going to address those, at least not 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 directly. I want to talk more about the scientific and medical um, uh, issues that, that have emerged. So I'm just going to be throwing out some questions at you. And, and um, you know, I kind of emerged into this field as a statistician. We, we have plenty to say about data. I actually worked with one of our other colleagues, David Fagenbaum, about re in repurposing medicine. So that was my scientific role in this. But I also wrote quite a few um, articles about COVID for the popular press. So I'm going to start off with, with, a, with our, probably the biggest success story on the medical side, which was the vaccines, right? Um, I think that was a great surprise. I mean, we, I remember when, when we were working on it, um, but I'm going to ask something more specific. So let's, so the mRNA vaccine, vaccine is, is the ones that I had. I don't know whether you had those. There are others. Um, but this is what we know about them, and this is what we learned about them from the clinical trials. People are somewhat surprised to hear this. Um, we know that it prevents symptomatic infection, at least against that original strain. Um, we never knew from that original trial that it prevented transmission or, or infection at all, uh, just just asymptomatic infection. Later, we pretty much were nearly certain based on observational data that it seemed to prevent severe illness. Um, I think you probably agree with that. So my question is, uh, does the mRNA vaccines work better at preventing serious illness than some of the more conventional approaches that were developed by other countries or by the J&J, &J, for example? Yeah, so this is a great question. Um, I will say that, you know, we've all been surprised, one, at the successes and also humbled by what we didn't know and what we still don't know. So you know, there's a lot of learning still going on. And, uh, you know, I think there's been an expectation that we have all the answers at the beginning of the problem. And we don't. As scientists, we continue to learn and have to you know look at the data and and try to explain what the data mean. 
So the answer to your question is, uh, yes, these mRNA vaccines do an incredibly good job at preventing from severe disease. Um, that's one of the biggest benefits. Um, they probably do a, a, you know, a little bit less well at preventing sort of mild infections, right? So they, we, we all know that you've gotten vaccine, you get COVID anyway. Yeah, you complain about it, but you complain about it from your couch sitting at home, not from an ICU bed. So this is really good. Um, I think, are they better than other vaccines? It's really, really hard to say. Respiratory infections are extremely difficult to prevent entirely. Now, we all get the yearly flu vaccine, or we should. Um, Those yearly flu vaccines really prevent severe disease. They don't really prevent mild infections. And we don't know anything about that. People have never heard about this issue before, this difference between protecting from severe disease and protecting from mild infections. Because for no other infection have we ever looked as hard to see those mild infections that don't bring you to the doctor. We just happen to know about it now because we're all testing with these rapid antigen tests for SARS-CoV-2, which is great. It's new knowledge. But I think what we've learned over the past you know, two and a half years or so of, of having the vaccines around is that they're excellent to keep you out of the hospital, prevent severe disease. And the consequence of that is that we can get back to roughly our normal lives. They're not going to completely prevent prevent any mild SARS-CoV-2 infection, but probably other vaccines don't do that either. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that, that you notice, for example, is that China and other and other Eastern European countries, are, they didn't even use the mRNA vaccines. Uh, we don't know exactly how they fared because we can't really trust anything they tell us. I'm just going to be pretty blunt about that. But when China finally decided that it's, it's, it's multiple year strategy of lockdown wasn't going to work, it's zero COVID, just couldn't work. They just exploded a country, country, a vaccinated country, but not an mRNA vaccinated country. It, how did it do? Did it do? Uh, um, so that's a great point. Uh, China, uh, China has made a, a number of poor decisions. I'll try to be polite. Uh, yeah. A poor decision <laughs> about how to handle the pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know the other vaccine platforms, and I, I want to be careful because there there are some. There's a whole range, right? Novavax um, is a yeah. really interesting vaccine platform that didn't get traction for other reasons. Uh, but then there's the the Chinese vaccine. There's an Indian vaccine. There's a Russian vaccine, all of which um, appear to be uh, less uh, effective. I'm um, using that term in a, in a colloquial sense, not a scientific sense than the mRNA vaccines seem to do the best job of all of them preventing severe disease. So I think you're exactly right. The Chinese vaccine did not do as well at preventing severe disease. So let me ask a question now having to do with, um, well, two issues that kind of segue with each other. One is side effects, in particular for mRNA and how that, that, that of course, varies by age. And I want to ask you specifically about that. Um, But that actually ties in with um, prior infection. As a as a as a means of preventing serious illness in future infection, so uh, one of the things one of the papers that came out post our ending regular discussion of COVID on our radio show was a, a paper which fairly convincingly documented that prior infection was as good as a vaccination at preventing serious illness. This is something that virologists like you and 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 just people who have been studying this even casually thought to be true from the very beginning, but for the most part was was not something the public believed. And, and in fact, it, it didn't really jive with the message that was being broadcast nationally. And I can even tell us at, at our own pen, uh, you couldn't be excused from getting the vaccine if you had had COVID. We just didn't allow that. Um, so my question is, um, 
just to summarize that 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 is was that was that something we really did know accurately early on and 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 guess if that's true and i think it is um why did we ignore that yeah yeah so let's start at the end of this this is a really important point so uh, prior infection certainly induces pretty strong immunity and like you said we now know from some pretty well controlled studies that prior infection is probably about as good, maybe slightly better, depending on what metrics you look at, but but let's call them the same as mRNA vaccination of preventing severe disease. Um, one reason, so, so first of all, first thing to say, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when vaccines were first coming out, the risk associated with getting your immunity from infection versus getting your immunity from a vaccine was orders of magnitude different. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people died from getting their immunity from infection. And maybe a handful of people had severe adverse events from the vaccines, right? So the the, uh, the risk of infection as a source of immunity is very, very high compared to vaccination. Well, you have to be careful because that's not how I quite phrased it. I said, if you've already had an infection, you were being still told to get vaccinated. So and that's a very different question. That is a different question. So that's right. And so one reason early on that that approach was taken is that we couldn't tell who had been infected and who hadn't. We couldn't tell whether you had immunity from infection or not. And at least in the healthcare setting, now universities, you could argue more broadly about student populations and risks and things, but in the healthcare setting, you are a risk to other people. And so in the healthcare setting, mandating that we are sure that you have immunity and are less likely to to bring disease into the hospital made a lot of sense. Um, We now have learned a lot since that time, and we can get into some of the nuances of that. But getting vaccinated after you've been infected, there is very little risk. There's there's no downside to that. Um, And so the uh, added risk that you're asking people to take by getting a vaccine after they've been infected is is essentially, you know, almost non-existent. So from a policy standpoint, if you can't tell who has immunity and who doesn't, we ask you to get vaccinated. Now, I think those policies outlived their usefulness, in my personal opinion. When we started to get to the point where we could tell who had been infected, um, there was a time to revise. And, and that's what you do as scientists and as policymakers. When new data comes out, we adjust and, and revise our approaches. And so should we still have that policy today? No, no, we don't need that today. In the interim, when we were trying to protect vulnerable populations, it was really important to try to limit the um, the risk that one person causes to another person, especially in the healthcare setting. So I'm going to push back on that slightly because sure. we never really, or maybe even strongly, we never really knew. We knew that it prevent the vaccine prevented symptomatic infection, but we didn't really know that it prevented you from transmitting it because you could transmit it asymptomatically. Yeah, no, I think we did know that. And I, and I think this has gotten a lot of misrepresentation in the popular press lately. Yeah. So do we, tra- do we block transmission dramatically? Probably not. But what we do, now let's just say that you're vaccinated and you're asymptomatic. Yeah, that's right. So literally, what does the definition of that mean that you're not doing? You're not coughing. You're not sneezing. You're yeah. not expelling things out of your mouth and nose right. at a high velocity when other people are around. So by definition, if you're asymptomatic, your rate of transmission is lower. We also know from household studies that people are vaccinated in small studies. There's been some controversy around this, but there was enough evidence even at that time that if you were vaccinated, the likelihood of transmitting to other people in the house was lower. Now, it's not lower by like a hundredfold, but it's lower by several fold. So if you're integrating this, 
over a healthcare system with 30,000 employees, you know, 500 or 700 beds in the hospital of all people or many people who are at high risk. Do you want to reduce the chances of transmitting by some fraction? Absolutely. That saves lives. So the idea that vaccination or prior immunity does not reduce transmission is still a very confusing topic, but I think it's gotten misrepresented in the, in the popular press because there are a handful of studies that have looked at it in a slightly casual way, to be honest. Well, so, so I guess I'm going to ask, so I think that might have been true in the first strain, but um, I can tell you now that the our vaccination and our immunity was to to the previous strains, and now we keep getting we keep getting infected with the later strains. Uh, as someone who's gotten infected twice, yeah. um, um, and I'm sure, and in fact, I have uh, almost everyone I know has has been infected at least once, and and in fact, at this point, most people twice as well. Um, it seems to me that that the that the vaccine, all of us vaccinated, and it just giving it to people, even though we've been vaccinated, because the strain is, has varied has made that original vaccination while still protective and immunity, natural immunity, has pre- prevented us from getting seriously ill. I don't know anyone post-vaccination who had anything other than a very mild uh, case of, uh, uh, or at least comparatively mild case of an illness. Um, I don't I don't think, I mean, when you said several factors, I would argue that it's it's in the in the small percentages at this point in terms of presenting, preventing uh, transmission. I, I think, well, I think, I think now, and I think it depends on the setting that you're talking about, right? So if you go into a nursing home setting, um, again, I use the example of coughing and, and, and sneezing and expelling yeah. a lot of material from, from where the infection is located. Um, in, you know, community dwelling uh, settings, you still are reducing transmission to some extent. I will certainly agree with you that we're in a very different landscape of this now than we were when vaccines were first rolled out. And you had to consider this issue of do we ask people to get vaccinated, even if they, you know, based on their personal reporting, said they were infected at some point. Um, You know, I think it's a very, very different equation. And so now um, I think if you've had a recent exposure, I'll call it either vaccination or infection um, within the last six months and maybe for healthy adults even longer, I don't think we need to worry about another booster and things like that. Right. People aren't going to end up in the hospital. It's really the over. 65 um, communities, people with uh, comorbidities or high risk conditions, basically compromised immune systems. But now I think, you know, you're right. Uh, We're seeing perhaps a a very, we're seeing very strong reduction in symptomatic, you know, severe symptomatic disease by vaccination or immunity. We're not seeing, or at least we can't quantify the reduction in transmission that we're seeing based on prior immunity. It's probably very small in the current setting. That's different than where we were in the fall of 2020 or early 2021. I, I guess what uh, to get that very clear, what's happened is there's still people are operating that were uh, in some settings and it's actually geographic. I mean, so you, I just came back from a trip to San Francisco. I feel like it was a time warp um, yeah. you know, and, and, and my, my son lives in Cambridge and that's a time warp um, there. And, and in the sense that they're still living in a, in a, in a, an environment where they believe that it's important to check vaccinations. My, my son is a musician. He performed outside to a fully masked audience where people were asked to vaccinate wherever average age was 25. And, and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, what is happening? And, and, and it, this just seems to me just, you haven't adjusted to the, to the, the new eight, the new, the, the new reality. So I would completely agree with that. <laughs> At some point we have to, we have to trust our immune systems, right? While at the same time, recognizing where that trust 
where that uh, where that breaks down, and so it so does. Where does it break? So, so let me ask you. So, one, one, I, I collected some some questions from my colleagues. One of the question is um, for. So, I have personally treat have treated COVID for a long time now as if it's just just like getting a cold. Um, I have no more fear of getting COVID than I would of getting a cold. Um, and uh, and that's be- and by the way, but in the beginning, I always thought of myself as a high risk person. I'm over fifty. I'm male. Those are two bad things. And at that time, I had a BMI over 30, and I'm proud to say publicly, I'm well lower than that now. Um, <laughs> um, and so I thought to myself, this is a disease I don't want, right? Um, and and um, But now after being vaccinated um, more than once uh, with a booster, I don't think that booster was probably that relevant, but I did have it, um, and lighter, and, um, and then and the current strains, et cetera, et cetera, I have essentially decided this is just a cold. Um, Obviously, other people might might have immuno um, uh, issues that they might not want to think that way. But am I wrong? No, I don't think you are. And I think that this is this is part of the point of, you know, using science and data to evolve and improve your understanding of a situation and um, the recommendations, societal recommendations. Um, I will say we've been a little bit slow on that. And mm-hmm. I think that, that slowness has been because. We were shell-shocked with the 1,500, 2,000 deaths a day. We were shell-shocked with the emergency room wards in Central Park outside Mount Sinai, right? So I think there's that um, conservativeness, not in the political sense, of course, in in getting ourselves to the next phase of this um, has been partly because of the amount of damage that was caused by not understanding the, uh, the disease and not being able to treat it. I'm with you. As a scientist who has studied this for the entire pandemic, I'm with you. For me, you know, 51 and a half years old, you know, reasonably healthy, uh, I'm not concerned for myself. I mask when I go into the hospital. I don't have any reason to, but if I went to a nursing home, I would mask, N95 mask, worried about, you know, possible transmitting to somebody who's immunocompromised. I recommend for everybody I know who has some some comorbidity or something that would put them at high risk to stay up to date with their vaccinations. So, so, so let me ask you a question. Uh, I, I can respond to two of those. I'll start with the second one, um, which is what are the uh, the comorbidities that are really functionally important? Because I've been hearing people talk about comorbidities, and I'm finding that it seems to be far greater than than I believe is actually scientifically justified. Like yeah. I'll throw out I throw I'll throw out one that I know is important. If you're actively treated for cancer, mm-hmm. you're, 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 that's a major problem. Uh, right. What would what are and uh, what are the others that really are justifiable? Yeah, so I think there's three classes, um, and I think you know cancer treatment is one for a variety of reasons, and it overlaps a little bit with the second one, which is immunocompromised. Now, you can be immunocompromised because of cancer treatment. You can also be frail because of cancer treatment and not you know, specifically immunocompromised. Transplant patients, there are a bunch of other diseases, um, autoimmune diseases, where you become immunocompromised because of the treatment uh, for that disease. Um, so cancer treatment, immunocompromised, and then I would say anybody else who is frail, And so frailty, there are true definitions of frailty from a medical standpoint, is also associated with old age. So, and this goes with every other respiratory virus we know about, a flu infection or an RSV infection in in one of us in our early 50s or so um, is very different than that same infection in a 92-year-old who is bound to a wheelchair. 
it is just different no matter what other factors are going on. So those are really the three big ones. Um, you might want to consider, you know, very young infants as well or premature babies. Um, but but the burden of disease there is a lot a lot lower than in the other three categories I talked about. All right, so the other question I'm going to bring in, to, uh, push on a little bit is the masking issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's two, two things. There's masking policy and there's individual um, pr practice. Yes. So I'll, I'll go and start with the individual practice right away. Um, because you talk about wearing an N95 in a certain kind of um, uh, setting, like a nursing home setting or a hospital setting where there are frail people around. Um, one of the things that you as a doctor are fully aware of is that a, a mask in order to function has to be properly fitted to your face. And uh, and I, I, I've, and I, I've actually talked to people. I've never had a mask properly fitted because I'm not a medical professional who deals with actual sick people. But the ones who have told me about this say that it's an actual process where they ship, you find the one that actually fits your face. I have a big face, big nose, um, and you know, and that I would have to find the right one. I'd have to have it fitted to make sure that it's not leaking and have to be worn properly. I will say that not in a single time throughout the entire COVID pandemic have I ever worn a mask properly, um, given that definition. And secondly, when I look around at my hundreds of students that I've that were wearing masks in class, they don't anymore, or in settings where I still see people wearing them quite regularly. I go to synagogue and, I, and there's one of the synagogues of the several that I go to where people wear them in fairly large numbers. I feel like I could stick my entire hand between their, the mask and their face. That's not a functioning mask. Um, so I'm going to stand up and say on an individual basis, if you're not wearing a mask properly, I mean, really properly, is there any benefit? Um I, I will just say, uh, not every healthcare professional is is fitted. So way before the pandemic years ago, because of some work that we do with a completely unrelated virus, we have to get fitted in my lab for the right size N95 mask. Mm -hmm. uh, there are two sizes. You wear a small or a medium or a medium or a large, depending on where you are. They come in, they do a test. And you know what? It's not that hard to figure out without this thing, right. the test. It's not that hard to figure out which mask works. Most healthcare individuals in the healthcare setting don't go through this complicated fit test. Do you know how many healthcare professionals we had acquire COVID during early 2021 in the healthcare setting when they're wearing masks? Almost none. Masks work. Absolutely 100% they work. And it's not that hard to figure out whether the mask is fitting tightly around your face. Some words that we hear over and over again, a tight fitting mask. You know, that's not, you know, the mask down around your chin. That's not the mask, as you say, where you can stick your fingers down the side in your cheek. So I, I think that, um, again, from an individual standpoint, we'll get to policy in a second, which I have different opinions about. From an individual standpoint, masks can be very effective. There have been some studies that, again, made the popular press recently on meta-analyses of the effectiveness of masks that have been uh, very, very poorly designed studies that have sent the, the wrong message. Um, this is the equivalent, as you say, of, of like looking at, uh, you know, studies that just tell people go wear a mask and mixing those studies with studies where they actually make sure people are wearing masks properly. It's like, you know, taking a bag of apples to make applesauce. You know, if there are 10 good apples in there and two rotten ones, your applesauce is still going to be rotten. That's what happens with meta-analyses when there's a bad, poorly designed study mixed in with some good studies. It turns out that masks really do work. They prevent transmission for sure. And they also reduce your chance of getting infected. You're absolutely right, only if worn properly. So if we're not, you know, in a classroom setting, uh, getting on an airplane, you know, I'm not sure that we can quantify whether masks are valuable or not. In the healthcare setting, 
in nursing home settings where you have vulnerable populations, there's still absolutely value to individuals wearing masks. So I, I'm going to then go to change it slightly about still on mask, um, but almost no country in the outside of the United States uh, implemented mask policies in children. Yeah, we did. And um, that seemed to be flying the face of anything. I mean, it, it's, it, it seemed to be carrying an idea way further than there was scientific merit. And it, at the same time, I'll speak economically. I'm a Wharton School business professor, I guess. Um, there's a cost to wearing a mask as well. And uh, when you're in school and and uh, and and you're trying to learn, and and also in many settings that, uh, that where I feel like being able to connect with the people near you um, is severely limited when your face is covered. Um, do you, I mean I, I felt like we took this idea that masks can help and prevent infection in certain limited cases where they're properly worn in healthcare settings, and we generalized that. Um, almost as a totem, where this is what what this is what good people do, regardless of whether it's actually working. Yeah. So you know this this opens up. Uh, you said you didn't want to get into some of the political issues. This opens up a whole can of worms of like, um, you know, places where we went, we went uh, astray during the pandemic. And I I would say this is uh, that criticism is apolitical and it's equally uh, lobbed at both sides of the political aisle. Um, there are a variety of settings where uh, you had an inability to effectively mask, and yet we insisted upon it, right? Like, you know, how do you mask kids in a daycare setting? Yeah. Uh, or, you know, let's let's actually take early elementary school because the pressures there, you know, um, may have come uh, from uh, uh, places where there was a big lever to pull. And I'm not calling this out specifically or being critical, but teachers unions had a lot to do with, you know, masking kids uh, who effectively can't mask, right? Um, on the other side, uh, there are a number of settings where you have immunocompromised or, you know, vulnerable kids going to school who are terrified of coming into a school where, where masks aren't being worn in the classroom. And you have sympathy, at least, you know, I have sympathy for that setting, that family, um, and, and, and those children, um, where there may not be an, you know, a perfect scenario for everybody. So I think, I think we may have, um, I think many of the strategies that we thought were a good idea outlived their usefulness or, you know, were taken to the sort of uniform application without, without having a way to be a little more nuanced about the best possible solution. There are a variety of reasons for that. Um, so I think I think masks in kids for as long as we did it had different negative consequences in a variety of settings. And they weren't all the same kinds of things. Young kids, you know, educational issues for sure. Um, older kids created a real bifurcation of, um, uh, you know, really political divide, even in teenagers uh, about these issues. And oh. so it became really, really detrimental, I think, to the ecosystem of education. Not that we shouldn't have been masking at some point at some age kids in some settings, but the risk in kids was a lot lower than, say, nursing home or, or um, hospitalized settings. Well, yeah, we also extrapolate. Now, I'm going to we, we're down to our final three minutes. So I just want to ask a, a couple of questions um, that are, are more, maybe more direct. Um, Paxlovid is still being recommended for mm -hmm. people over 50. And it's based on data that a, a, a randomized con, double-blind control study on unvaccinated people. Right. Uh, what do you? Th I, 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 when I got COVID for I think the second time, I was offered Paxlovid. I'm like, I'm not taking that. Um, and yet, many people I know are taking it. What do? You, what's the basis for recommending that for just people over 50? Just blanket. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this get, gets to a couple things. I know we don't have much time, but doing the proper study and people who are vaccinated is just prohibitively expensive and logistically infeasible now. So we can't do the study that we need. It's right. just right. It, no one's going to pay for it. And it's not going to be an easy study to do. So one reason why you're seeing Paxlovid still recommended is there is data that Paxlovid can reduce the likelihood of long COVID, right? And, and long COVID is a real issue. And we could talk some other time about defining it and, and what the real economic impact is, but, but it's, it's very large. So if it reduces your likelihood of long COVID by 50%, there are a number of people who I think want that. So should we have that as an option? Sure. If the risk benefit ratio there um, makes sense, I, I think it's okay. There's, there's very little downside. We have not seen dramatic Paxlovid resistance coming up yet. So I think the, the downside of prescribing Paxlovid more broadly is very low. Uh, okay, that's a good answer. I, I only we only have two minutes left, and I want to want to wrap up. So, uh, my last question is: We talked earlier about no downsides to vaccines. That's true for relatively speaking for someone our age. But um, I, I reacted very negatively when my son, who is in the early twenties bracket, was forced to take a uh, to do a, a a second booster shot. I thought that was unfair, un, didn't provide any benefit on the positive side. And, and there's a small chance, but not insignificant of, uh, of some sort of heart inflammation. Would you, was that, is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, well, I don't know. I think, I think we are overreacting to, to a couple things uh, in, in this sort of vaccine hesitancy or, or sort of vaccine thought. We have too much information. I know we don't have much time. The, the risk of myocarditis in that age bracket is lower than the severe adverse event rates for many other vaccines. It's very low. Um, it's also almost uniformly completely reversible, right? So it is, it's a serious event. It's scary, but it does not cause long, long-term effects. The question, I think the risk ba- uh, benefit thing here is, are you talking about benefiting only the 20-year-old or are you talking about the potential benefit to others? The science has changed on this. The potential benefit of a third vaccine dose or a fourth vaccine dose for blocking transmission to others, very low. So I think we should be revising this. I don't think we need yeah. to be boosting 22-year-olds multiple times to prevent them getting other people sick. They can make the choice themselves if they want to protect themselves more. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us on Wharton Moneyball on SiriusXM. XM. 